Do you love the smell of a turp? The feel of a kidney at open nephrectomy? The sound of a Q-max over 30 mils per second? The sight of a renal stone disintegrating at the tip of your laser fibre? Or the taste of a beer at the end of a difficult cystectomy and neobladder? Then delight your five senses with So You're Gonna. So You're Gonna, the practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Hi there and welcome. I'm Joseph Iskia. This is our new podcast series from the team at Talking Urology, where we are helping doctors and allied practitioners develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. We've heard your feedback from our Talking Urology podcast and understand that while they've been surprisingly popular, sometimes you just want an informative, fun and entertaining take on a common urologic topic. So while the BBC News quiz is informative and consistently makes jokes that could be considered below the belt, they're not very useful in the day-to-day lives of those who love urology. Therefore, we are bringing the literature to life with our new podcast series, So You're Gonna. And today, I'm joined by my special co-host, Rachel Esler. Hello, Joseph. I'm a urologist from Brisbane, and we're going to tackle the topic, so you're going to start an alpha blocker. And we are joined by an international BPH expert whose name has been attached to nearly every large trial for the medical management of lower urinary tract symptoms, Klaus Roeborn. He is the professor and chairman of the Department of Urology at the University of Texas Southwestern. He has chaired committees at the WHO-sponsored consensus conferences on BPH and is the current co-chairman of the AUA BPH Guidelines Committee. So it's fair to say, Joseph, that Klaus has forgotten more about alpha blockers than you've ever learned. He must have a memory like an elephant. Possibly. So stay tuned while we give you the latest news on alpha blockers for treating patients with symptomatic BPH. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And indeed, we have a great podcast for you, which we will get right onto once we get back from a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is proudly supported by Maine Pharma, an ASX-listed company with heritage traced back to folding pharmaceuticals. Maine Pharma uses its drug delivery expertise to improve the formulation of products and also in licenses novel, valued pharmaceuticals that would otherwise not be available to Australian patients. For further information, visit mainpharma.com. So thanks to Maine Pharma, whose support was essential to making this podcast possible but who had no editorial input into the podcast apart from some compliance advice about Australian registered products that you will hear throughout the podcast. So back to the alpha blockers. Like a lot of urological medications, alpha blockers have an interesting history that dates back to the 1970s. In fact, in 1975, three great things happened. Firstly, Monty Python and the Holy Grail was released. Secondly, Bruce Springsteen released his album, Born to Run. And thirdly, a young researcher, Marco Kane from Hadassah University Hospital in Jerusalem, demonstrated that strips of human prostate tissue contracted in response to norepinephrine. Therefore, armed with his newfound discovery and a holy hand grenade, Marco galloped off down Thunder Road with his assistant banging two coconuts together and noticed that the norepinephrine-induced contractions could be inhibited by pre-treatment with phenoxybenzamine, a non-selective inhibitor of alpha-adrenoceptors. After this serendipitous finding, the alpha blocker was born in urology. However, born in the USA was still nine years from release. Marco's work was published in the British Journal of Urology in 1976 and led to the natural progression of alpha blockers for managing patients with symptomatic BPH. 
Two years later, in 1978, the therapeutic benefits of phenoxybenzamine was confirmed by a randomised placebo control study also published in the British Journal of Urology. Phenoxybenzamine was found to be superior to placebo in treating lower urinary tract symptoms and increasing peak flow rate. The primary limitation of phenoxybenzamine was its side effect profile, which included tiredness, dizziness, impaired ejaculation, nasal stuffiness and hypotension. Men were fainting and dropping like flies after popping a few phenoxybenzamines, but at least their flow rates were improving. Okay, Rachel, so we know they work, but how do they work? Let's take a quick look at everybody's favourite bit, which is the science, and try to understand how our understanding of their mechanism of action has changed over time, from initially believing it was purely prostate muscle relaxation, to now including more central effects that improve symptomatic LUTs. Let's start at the beginning. It's well known that BPH causes bladder obstruction by two mechanisms. Firstly, mechanical compression by the prostatic adenoma on the urethra, and secondly, from dynamic obstruction of the bladder by prostatic smooth muscle compression. Alpha blockers interrupt motor sympathetic adrenergic nerve supply to the prostate, which reduces urethral pressure. Therefore, a functional predominance of the alpha-1 adrenoceptors in human prostate muscle provides the rationale for using alpha blockers to treat outlet obstruction. However, the number and type of alpha receptors does not always predict the therapeutic benefit. That's right, Rachel. For example, tamsulosin actually has a lower affinity for some alpha receptor subtypes compared with most of the other alpha blockers, but has good efficacy in the management of benign prostatic hyperplasia. Therefore, when medically managing BPH, the goal is to achieve the trifecta of maximum improvement in urinary flow rate, reduction in lower urinary tract symptoms, and to do this while producing minimal adverse effects. So Rachel, let's quickly touch on those different alpha receptor subtypes in a little bit more detail. Sure. There are three alpha-1 adrenoceptor subtypes, the alpha-1A, alpha-1B, and alpha-1D in human tissue. Wait on, what happened to the alpha-1C receptor? At one time, there was a subtype known as alpha-1C, but it was found to be identical to the previously discovered alpha-1A receptor subtype. So to avoid confusion, naming was continued with the letter D. Nice. Approximately 75% of alpha-1 adrenergic receptors in the prostate belong to the alpha-1A subtype. This means that antagonism of this receptor can lead to improvement in LUTs via relaxation of the lower urinary tract smooth muscle, and this is the predominant rationale for alpha blocker treatment for symptomatic BPH. Now, the alpha-1B subtype is widely found in vascular smooth muscle. Thus, blocking it can cause orthostatic hypotension. It is also found in human prostate epithelium. The alpha-1D subtype is functional in human epicardial coronary arteries, and its inhibition might mediate coronary vasodilation. To reduce these cardiovascular side effects, alpha-1 adrenergic receptor inhibitors with high sensitivity for the alpha-1A subtype, such as psilidocin, have been developed, and these are favoured in the elderly for very obvious reasons. Okay. So it's pretty simple so far. Alpha receptors in the smooth muscle of the bladder, neck and prostate are responsible for increased tone and can be inhibited with alpha blockers. And until recently, that was where we thought the story ended. But not anymore. The plot thickens. Correct. As well as lower urinary and vascular tissues, the three alpha-1 receptor subtypes have also been found in the human spinal cord, particularly in the sacral ventral motor neurons and parasympathetic pathways. The main difference between alpha-1 receptor antagonists appears to relate to their potential to cause adverse effects due to their action at extra urinary receptors, like those in the central nervous and cardiovascular systems. 
The adverse side effects vary by the type of alpha blockers, but some ballpark figures were determined in a meta-analysis in European urology in 1999 and include dizziness at 12%, asthenia at 7.5%, chest pain at 3%, postural hypotension at 1% to 8%, rhinitis or stuffy nose at 2%, and abnormal ejaculation at 1.4%. Obviously, the newer selective alpha blockers have less vascular side effects, but more retrograde ejaculation, and we'll come back to that in a minute. A good number to know is that 11% of patients discontinue alpha blockers due to their side effects, as demonstrated by Kirby in the PREDICT trial. Thanks, Rachel. I just wanted to pick up on the side effect of sexual dysfunction that is quoted in the product information sheets. Some patients actually read those iliad-length epics that come with the tablets, and it is important to note that patients can get confused about what sexual dysfunction means in these brochures. We can distinguish between the retrograde ejaculation associated with alpha blockers and the loss of libido and erectile dysfunction we occasionally see with the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. It is an important point to consider when counselling patients. But I digress, back to the selectivity of the alpha receptors. Looking at the more common alpha blockers, alfuzacin, doxazacin and terazacin are non-subtype selective. Tamsulosin has roughly equal selectivity for alpha-1A and alpha-1D and less so for alpha-1B. Psilidocin has very high selectivity for alpha-1A with decreasing selectivity for alpha-1D and then alpha-1B. Now, some people have early starts and we don't want them falling asleep at the wheel with too much science. So it's time to chat with our international expert, Klaus Rauborn, for his take on the practicalities of using these drugs. I thought we would start with the big question. At risk of ruining all future sponsorship and making this the last podcast ever, we asked him if there was any difference in the efficacy between the different generations of alpha blockers. Because the newer selective alpha blockers are certainly more expensive than the older non-selective alpha blockers. Well, as you know, there have been comparative studies done and even randomized trials comparing these various alpha blockers, and most of them didn't show a big difference in terms of efficacy, and the meta-analyses didn't show any difference in terms of efficacy either. Now, there are some trials, and people will bring them up, that showed an advantage of one versus the other, but be careful. Most of these trials were rigged to show one particular aspect of one alpha blocker being better than the other. Across the board, I think there is not a big difference. Ah, well, this podcast gig was good while it lasted, but Klaus and his level one evidence has skewered us. Wait, Joseph, before you start crying into your flow meter, let's have a look at the efficacy you can quote to your patients when starting alpha blockers. The headline numbers you need to know are that 40% of men will say they feel a symptomatic improvement from an alpha blocker. The meta-analysis shows that alpha blockers decrease the IPSS by 35 to 40% and increase maximum urinary flow rate, or Qmax, by 20 to 25%. They also increase bladder capacity and decrease detrusor overactivity. This is where I like to dig below the surface of the headlines and look at a very interesting point. In fact, the meta-analysis in European Urology in 2008 found that when you compared them to placebo the alpha blockers improved the Qmax by 1.3 mils per minute and the IPSS by 1.9 points more than placebo. I think this is one interesting case where the clinical benefit is actually greater than the statistically significant benefit. You won't often hear me say that. This is a key point because we know that placebo has a larger than normal effect in men with lower urinary tract symptoms and hence why many patients will claim that their latest herb or snake oil seems to work. 
That's a good number to work with. It's also interesting to note at this point that the studies also showed that while alpha blockers help with the day-to-day symptoms associated with lower urinary tract symptoms, they did not reduce the risk of acute urinary retention nor the need for surgery. This is considered one of the major differences in the long-term efficacy between alpha blockers and the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, but that's a topic for another whole podcast. Okay, let's get to the practicalities of prescribing alpha blockers. We asked Klaus what he thought were some of the commonest mistakes that urologists make when prescribing these drugs. Well, there's a couple of common mistakes that are being made. The first one is that urologists switch alpha blockers for efficacy reasons. They argue with a patient to go from one to another to improve efficacy. And the reality is that their efficacy is just about the same across the board. The second mistake is that they don't respect too much the patient's baseline uh, presentation, age, sexual activity, etc., and being careful what they select. So, for example, In a young, very sexually active patient, I think it's not appropriate to select psilocybin because the patients will call in with uh, an ejaculation. And in an elderly patient with cardiac condition, I feel you should choose alfuzacin because it's cardiac-wise extremely safe. So is psilocybin. And alfuzacin, on the other hand side, doesn't cause any ejaculation problems. So I don't think that urologists differentiate enough based on adverse events and they seem to want to differentiate based on efficacy, which I don't think is irrelevant. So monitoring and preparing for side effects is the key to using alpha blockers. Great, we might be back in the podcast business after all. I also just want to clarify the terminology, where Klaus refers to an ejaculation. We know that he's referring to the effect that alpha blockers have, where we see retrograde ejaculation, where the sperm go back up into the bladder on ejaculation. It's not great for making babies, sure. But most of my men don't seem to mind. Except this one 75-year-old guy, a new father at 76, and very proud of himself. We asked Klaus if he had any tips for commencing alpha blockers or dealing with the side effects. Well, I grew up in the 90s with Sedoxazo and Terazosin, and so those will have to be titrated. And so we wrote a titration pack, you know, start with two, then go to four or five, and then from four or five go to eight. And that's definitely very important with those drugs. With the other drugs, it's important to tell the patient to watch for certain side effects. Be aware that with tamsulosin, there is an 8 to 20% risk of an ejaculation, depending on the dose used. With psilocybin, there is a 30% risk. Make the patients aware of that. And then I'll tell the patient to expect a beneficial effect on their symptoms within three days to seven days. Please remember, here's another important point. The shortest time period for which the symptom score is validated is seven days. So the shortest time period of measurement is seven days. In other words, the IPSS score was validated to ask the question, you know, over the last week or so, how did your symptoms change? But that doesn't mean that the effect is not sooner. So I tell patients to expect it after three to seven days when the drug reaches steady state. Side effects, well, I tell the patient to basically look out for anything that is out of the ordinary, from stuffy nose to stomach upset, to a dizziness, to lightheadedness, to ejaculatory problems or anything else along that line, and report it to me. They are some great tips from Klaus, but we just have to do our Australian Registered Products public announcement here. In the Australian product information, the quoted rates of retrograde ejaculation are 1.7% for tamsulosin and 23% for psilocybin, perhaps correlating with their alpha-1A receptor selectivity, which we know is only one component of their efficacy in lower urinary tract symptoms. 
Also, we must note that Terazison is no longer registered in Australia. Klaus has been the first or senior author or an investigator on most of the alpha blocker trials to come out over the last two decades, with MTOPS and Combat just to name a few. We asked him, what is the biggest mistake you see in interpretation of the alpha blocker trials you've been involved with? And therefore, do we need to have any caution when referencing them? I think there's two ways of misinterpreting that. The first way of misinterpreting it is that 90% of alpha blocker trials, with the except of the MTOPS trial, and uh, one trial with Elfusacin, they're all 12-week trials as a rule. And the 12-week trial result, in terms of the symptom improvement, are taken as the gospel. And people then forget that the prostate will grow, that the trussal muscle will deteriorate, then a year or two years down the road, things will change and the effect will not be as good. I think that's the number one error, to assume that the 12-week trial will project a 12-year outcome, which by no means does it do that. The second problem is not unique to alpha blocker, but to all medical treatment trials. And that is medical treatment trials get dinged because the patients have a placebo lead-in in in both groups, the active and the placebo. And after the placebo lead-in, they do another symptom score. And that symptom score is then used to assess the efficacy from baseline to endpoint. And that's a faulty assumption because a patient in practice he will give credit to both the placebo effect and the drug effect. So when doctors tell patients, well, you can expect about a four or five point improvement, I think that's wrong. They can expect a seven or nine point improvement because they also roll in this placebo effect. Often overlooked, poorly understood, but definitely a case in all medical treatment trials that that placebo effect is not credited to the alpha blocker in real life practice. Obviously, men present with a constellation of lower urinary tract symptoms. We asked him if there were any symptoms that responded best to alpha blockers. This is sort of a residence project, right? So if you have a data set of a large trial with the IPSS score, it's a cute project to say, hey, let's look how the individual symptoms responded or the storage versus voiding. And the universal answer is the alpha blockers work for both storage and voiding. And the universal answer is also it is rare to improve nocturia by more than one number, from three to two, from four to three, etc. To go to zero is nearly impossible. So I'd say across the board, the same nocturia, weak response. And you know that that's the case with all drugs. One final caveat with the use of alpha blockers we should mention is floppy iris syndrome. It seems to be relatively controversial as to its significance. I first asked Klaus what he thought of it. The floppy iris syndrome was reported first with Flomax and by far the highest number of reports, and that spontaneous event reporting is with Flomax. I and others, of course, believe this has to do with the fact that Flomax is widely utilized, and since doctors are aware, they are more in tune with it, they report it more often. I think that it is likely a phenomenon with all alpha blockers, and there is a book, a journal, it's called Schaumburg's Archive of Physiology. And in that particular magazine, an article was published some years ago that showed that all alpha blockers have the same effect on the ciliary muscle. And now comes the shocker. That effect sets in within a few hours or days from the first dose. And that effect is universally gone after a few days as well. I say shocker because, as you know, some eye doctors claim that the effect doesn't go away for weeks or it doesn't go away ever. This seems incredible to me because we know in neurology 
that the effect on the receptor is temporary. And when you stop, it's, it's gone. So I don't understand it. And my recommendation to patients is to A, tell their eye doctor or talk to both eye doctor and urologist. A, B, stop it for two weeks and resume it two weeks later, except if the ophthalmologist has a very specific reason to query this or question this or ask for something different. That's some fantastic practical advice, but I may remind our Australian audience that floppy iris syndrome is a cautious adverse event that requires special monitoring in Australia, and all BPH alpha blockers have this precaution. Even a single dose of an alpha blocker in a man's life can cause floppy iris syndrome. We should note that this only occurs intraoperatively if they go on to have cataract surgery. You can rest assured that there is not an epidemic of old men wandering the earth with floppy irises. But what is it? And what do the ophthalmologists have to say about it? I chatted to a colleague of mine, an ophthalmologist in Melbourne, Dr Jonathan Ruddle, to get his take on floppy iris syndrome. Thanks, Joseph. Intraoperative floppy iris syndrome was first described in 2005, but it certainly takes just one difficult cataract case to imprint the effect of alpha blockers in the mind of a cataract surgeon. Basically, to perform safe cataract surgery, it's necessary to have a stable and large pupil This is achieved by a pharmacological contraction of the iris dilator muscle. We typically use phenylephrine and inhibit the parasympathetic iris sphincter muscle. So it's not the ciliary muscle as we may have mentioned earlier. And considering that the eye could be considered almost as important as some of the urological organs, we will graciously accept the correction. So kind of you, Joseph. The theory goes that the alpha blockers you use on the urinary tract also block the alpha-1 adrenergic receptors supplying the iris dilator muscle. Their long half-life and the constant receptor blockade may result in diffuse atrophy of the iris dilator smooth muscle. This causes the edge of the dilated iris to billow with the fluid currents during cataract surgery and it tends to prolapse through normally formed cataract wounds. So these chronically alpha-blocked irises also tend to constrict as the surgery continues, risking further complications during the case. So it's actually an issue of atrophy of the muscle with chronic inhibition by alpha blockers. Fascinating. It seems prospective data shows that selective alpha-1 adrenergic receptor antagonists, such as tamsulosin and solidosin, are notorious for causing floppy iris more than non-selective blockers. The reported incidence of floppy iris associated with the selective alpha blockers ranges from 43 to 100%. The effects of adrenergic antagonists on iris behaviour are not correlated with dose, duration of therapy, and discontinuing the medication seems to have no effect on the degree of floppy iris. Non-selective blockers such as prazosin or alfuzosin can cause floppy iris, but perhaps at half the rate. How do cataract surgeons handle this potential complication? To be forewarned is all important. Cataract surgeons, when prepared, can give greater preoperative medication, alter their techniques, and counsel the patients about the slightly greater risks involved in their surgery. All right then. So if urologists are going to prescribe alpha blockers, what can they do? I suggest asking the patient about any planned or possible cataract surgery. If he has already had both cataracts removed, then there is no need to avoid or worry about any alpha-1 antagonist. If the patient says he's had a cataract diagnosed and his vision's been getting worse then he may want to have the eye examination repeated to see if his cataract surgery is a consideration in the near future before starting on a chronic alpha-1 antagonist. If there is a history of early cataract but surgery is not yet needed, starting with a non-selective alpha-1 antagonist may be preferable. 
If the non-selecting drug is ineffective, however, psilocin or tamsulosin use need not be discouraged. Thank you, John. That was fantastic. Klaus had a very interesting tip on how to bridge the cataract surgery for the patient that just can't stop their alpha blocker. Some patients feel without the alpha blocker, they say, well, if I don't take Flomax, I really can't urinate at all. I'm nervous. So I say, well, you can bridge that by taking Cialis 5 milligram daily, right? You can almost switch. One day you take Flomax, the next day you take Cialis, and it has almost the same effect. It immediately kicks in, and it immediately is in and out of the system. So for those patients, I use that particular approach. That is a great tip from Klaus. And just a quick compliance note here for in Australia, that Cialis is registered for continuous use for lower urinary tract symptoms. Okay, but what about the man with mixed lower urinary tract symptoms, both voiding and storage LUTs? Let's be honest, Rachel. No one really wants to hear what I think, so let's ask Klaus. I was part of several trials. I was part of the very first trial published in JAMA called the TIME study. That was a parallel group trial with Detrol versus Tamsulosin versus placebo versus combination. And it showed a benefit in all storage symptoms in 24-hour avoiding frequency and urgency counts with the combination therapy. My personal practice is that if a patient presents with dominant storage symptoms, I go for it. I give them both drugs at the same time and uh, I'll tell them why and how and then I'll just wait to see what happens. Now, there are patients who come back after a month and they say, yeah, but I still have urgency and frequency. And then I say, well, okay, add this drug. So I'll do both. I'll do a muscarinic add-on and I also do start patients at the same time. What I rarely do is I rarely start men only on an antimuscarinic. And, you know, I have concerns a little bit in men with elderly patients with bad tattoos. There have been studies done. Paul Abrams did it. Steve Kaplan did it showing no effect on your dynamics. But I maintain some nervousness. And so I either do both at the same time or stagger it, alpha blocker, antimuscarinic. But I rarely give an antimuscarinic alone. So while it was beyond the scope of this podcast to delve deep into the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, we asked Klaus what he thought of combination therapy. If there is a patient who fits the bill and has a big prostate or an elevated PSA and you know that, let's say from an MRI or an ultrasound and you know that already, just jump in with a combination with the 5-ARI. That's the most time-honored and most studied combination medicine in, in all of urology in trials of 20,000 men showing a substantial benefit. And don't try to just get away with just an alpha blocker because those patients will rather sooner than later deteriorate and not have a long-term benefit. Well, that's well and good. But there are so many things that we can use to surgically treat BPH, such as cut it, steam it, vaporise it, laser it, microwave it, freeze it, cook it, pin it. And really the only thing in the kitchen you can't throw at it is the sink. So where does Klaus see alpha blockers fitting in in the future? I think the alpha blockers have a role at the present time and they had a role for 25 years and they will have a role in the future. There's many men who don't want to go to a minimally invasive surgical treatment, many men who shy away from any type of anesthetic. They like to take a medication trial for a while. And the majority of men, at least numerical, as you know, have a prostate size of under 40 grams. The majority have a PSA of under two, let's say. And in those patients, the alpha blockers, at least for a year or two years, provide excellent benefit. I mentioned earlier, you do want to monitor 
the long-term consequences and make the patient aware that after two, three, four years, the prostate may grow, that the tussar may weaken. And so it may not be the panacea for the long-term, but they have a present role and they have a future role. And they are fairly uh, time-honored uh, medications, as far as I can tell, for 25 years without major hiccups, notwithstanding the recent suggestion in the literature of some mentation issues in the elderly population. But then again, I have to admit that there's almost no drug that is currently not under fire for causing some confusion, mentation issues, and dementia in the elderly. And we'd have to see how these studies pan out. But the current crop of studies that talks about that is just weak from a uh, design point of view, and I don't really buy it. I think that these drugs are fundamentally quite safe. Well, that has been absolute gold from Klaus. Silver to you, Rachel, and I'll take home the bronzed walnut, the analogous size and shape of the normal prostate before it grows into the mythologised grapefruit. To summarise, alpha blockers were developed in the 1970s during the era of disco fever. The established role for alpha blockers as monotherapy or as combination therapy is based on large-scale randomised controlled trials such as MTOPS and COMBAT. And now for our Fast 5 facts you can quote to your patients tomorrow. Firstly, alpha blockers will improve their Qmax by 25%. Fact 2. They decrease the IPSS by 40%. Fact 3. 40% of men will have a significant improvement in their symptoms on an alpha blocker. Fact 4. 11% of men will need to cease an alpha blocker due to side effects. And finally, fact 5. Don't forget to mention floppy iris syndrome. And I think that's everything on alpha blockers for the moment, ladies and gentlemen. Hopefully, you've learned a thing or two about starting patients with benign prostatic hyperplasia on alpha blocker therapy. And thanks again for listening. And thanks to Klaus Roborn, who has shared his invaluable expertise and insights with us today. And thank you, Rachel, for joining me. So if you want to hear more of our podcast, go to talkingurology.com.au. You can get all the podcasts through iTunes or follow us on Twitter at talking underscore urology. Remember to send all feedback to talkingurology at gmail.com. You've been listening to Joseph Iskia, Rachel Esler and Klaus Robor. Written by Mark Quinlan, Niall Davis and Joseph Iskia. Produced by Joseph Iskia and Cara Webb. And a special thanks to our sponsor of this episode, Maine, the alpha dogs of pharma. So you're gonna. The practical urology podcast for those who love urology. Proudly brought to you by Maine Farmer.